Acts chapter 16 is where we pick up, but I want to start with a question. The question I have this morning is, are you busy? Are you busy? I mean, really, like, this is not a rhetorical question, although it could be, couldn't it? Because the answer for most of us is probably, you bet we're busy. I don't think I've ever been busier. It seems like all the time-saving devices we have in our lives just made us busier. And schedules are busy. I mean, I know me, I don't have my cell phone up here with me, but I used to keep just a pencil and paper schedule calendar. Did you guys do that too, pencil and paper? But now it's all on my cell phone and my cell phone talks to my computer and they sync each other with each other's schedules. And I don't understand how it works, but I'm glad it does. And when it doesn't, it really messes me up. Anybody have a full schedule book? You can raise your hand. All of us, maybe. Those of you that don't have a full schedule book, come see me after church. We can help you fill it. But being busy is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It just is what it is. I think it was Socrates that said, beware of the emptiness of a busy life. So just being busy in and of itself, sometimes we see that as a status symbol nowadays, that I'm busy, that means I'm important. But the question is, what are the things you have planned right now? What are your plans? Anybody here have plans for the summer? Summer vacation, you've already started planning. Maybe you've got, how many have plans like a year out? Like something you're doing next year? I know we're planning our Israel trip and we've got things planned next year. We're planning a wedding for the summertime. You guys have plans? How many of you have been encouraged to have a five-year plan? Oh, I gotta have a five-year plan. That's pressure, man. Someone told me you gotta have a five-year plan. I'm working on today, all right? Five-year plan. When we had to get the mortgage loan for this building, the bank wanted to know, what are your five-year plans? I'm like, ha, ah, how do you do that as a Christian? How do you do that as a pastor? Like, what's the five-year plan? My two-year plan would have fallen way short of what God had planned anyway. So I'm hesitant to hold to and stick to a five-year plan because I know that my plans are going to likely fall short of what God has planned or be in the wrong direction. So I recognize this as a Christian, and I wonder if you recognize that as a Christian, we do call Jesus Lord, don't we? And that means something. It's not just a word that we say. It means that our plans are submitted to him. Proverbs 16, I think it's verse 9, says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. So is planning wrong? Is planning inherently sinful? Absolutely not. We're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul had plans. They planned some stuff. But we're also going to watch how God intervenes into Paul's plans. And that's a huge theme through the Bible, isn't it? Can't you see all throughout the Bible how Jesus intervenes in people's plans or how God intervenes in people's plans? And so planning is a huge issue in the Bible. And as we say Jesus is Lord, the question is, is he Lord over your schedule book? Who directs the plans of your life? Is it you or is it him? I know we like it when his plans line up with ours, but I've heard you guys pray. When we get to prayer, it was, oh, Lord, we have plans and want you to validate our plans. We have plans and want you to come alongside and help us accomplish our goals in life. And we reduce God to that level. Well, I heard this story. I'll share it with you. An engineer, an architect, and a planner are standing before God at the throne of heaven. God looks at them and says, before granting you a place at my side, I must first ask you what you believe in. Addressing the engineer first, he asks, what do you believe? The engineer looks God in the eye and states passionately, I believe engineering to be for the good of all. 
Nothing else brings such unbridled joy to so many people from the slums of Rio to the bright lights of Barcelona. I've devoted my life to bring joy to people through good engineering. Well, God looks up and offers the engineer the seat to his left. He then turns to the architect. And you, my son, what is it that you believe? Ah, the architect stands tall and proud and says, I believe that good art and design are the fundamentals to an enjoyable life. And I've spent my whole career seeking to be a living embodiment of the quest for the best of these. Oh, God was moved by the passion of the speech of this architect. And he said, oh, you come and you sit at my right. Finally, he turned to the planner and he said, ah, yes, you're a planner. What is it that you believe? And the planner looked at God and said, I believe that you are sitting in my seat. <laughs> a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Too often, I think, we take that approach in our relationship with God. That we say, God, you're sitting in our seat. And so as we go through Acts chapter 16, I'm going to ask the guys in the back to put the map up on the screen. The theme for this is going to be just looking at this text from the context of planning. From the context of planning, a very important issue to all of us, a very uh, relevant issue to all of our lives. Now, if you've been studying with us, we've just come through Acts 15. We have uh, watched as the Jerusalem council made its decision about being saved by faith, validating that this was God's plan, that Jews and Gentiles alike would be saved by faith, not by works. We watched Paul and Barnabas previous to that, having gone on their first missionary journey. And that was up into Galatia, that region right smack in the center of the screen there is the region of Galatia. Along the left coast there where you see the Aegean Sea, the coast there is modern day Asia Minor. You're going to hear me refer to Asia Minor. So we're not talking about Asia and you know China and that area. We're talking about that region, which is now modern day Turkey, but that the western part of that region. Uh, we'll remember that Paul and Barnabas traveled together for a year. These guys were pals. These guys were partners. They were co-laboring in the field, seeing some great fruit from that, some great salvation among Gentiles, but also struggling together. And how many of you know that when you go through some stuff together, it brings you closer? These guys were persecuted together. They were attacked together. Lystra, one of the cities they're going to go back to, funny enough, if I get stoned to near death in a place, I ain't going back there probably. But Paul wants to go back. He and Barnabas plan to go back as the second missionary journey, beginning at the end of chapter 15, and strengthen the churches that they established when they went there. So the church has moved from Jerusalem and out to the rest of the region. It's gone up into Syria and Antioch, which was the sending church for Paul and Barnabas. By the way, if you ever go on a mission trip, missionaries, it's healthy to have churches that support you, to hold you accountable. And not supposed to be a lone ranger out there in the mission field, doing your own thing and accountable to nobody. They had a sending church, and then they accounted to that church when they came back. So they decide, hey, let's go back out. We've been hanging out here preaching. Things in Syria are going great, but we feel for those people that are out there struggling and hashing it out and slugging it out in Galatia. So let's go back. And Barnabas says, that's a great idea, Paul. I'll go get John Mark. And they said, wait a second. We're not going to bring John Mark. No way. He left us high and dry last time. He bailed on us. We can't afford to take him. I don't trust him. And Barnabas would say, actually, we should take him. And, you know, we talked about that last week. This was the battle. They had the same plan, but a different plan of attack. And that caused them to divide. These two great friends, these two co-workers drew up different teams. Paul took Silas and headed north around his old hometown. And Barnabas took his cousin, 
Mark, and they sailed to Cyprus. Now, we don't hear anything more from Mark and Barnabas in terms of ink in the New Testament. We read their names on occasion throughout the letters of the New Testament, but not very much. We don't know what happened after they went to Cyprus. Did they just settle down there and live happily ever after? We don't know for sure. Church history has some things to say. They're still Christians, and they're still serving the Lord. Mark becomes the writer of the Gospel of Mark. So good things happen, but the Holy Spirit's focus, and Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, focus is on the continued missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and his growing team. So it's Paul and Silas, as we pick up in Acts chapter 16, they've already headed out back up into the region of Galatia or modern-day Turkey. Verse 1 begins with, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Lystra and Iconium are closer together. They're neighboring cities. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So if I could have your attention, we just summarize what's going on there. On their way, second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, they're traveling through these regions. They have with them this decree that they had been given, this letter from the church in Antioch, from the church in Jerusalem. And they're passing on this truth. Hey, Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be close to God. They're accepted just as they are. They don't have to get circumcised and keep the law. Here's the things they have to remember to keep. And this gave them that letter. And as they're passing through those regions, they're passing on this information. And in Lystra, remember Lystra? That's where Paul and Barnabas were worshipped as gods. They healed a guy, and the whole town tries to worship them as Hermes and Zeus. And then things go from great, well, I guess you could, I don't know if you'd say great, you know, it's dangerous anytime anybody wants to worship you. But one minute they're being worshipped, the next minute they're being stoned to death and dragged out of the city. That's Lystra, a healing, false worship. And Timothy lives there with his mother and his grandmother. Now, we don't know a lot about his dad. What we do know, Bible says, is he was Greek. He was Greek in terms of his culture and his background. But his mom, Timothy's mom, and his grandmother were Jewish. Now, that's an odd combination. Jews weren't supposed to marry non-Jews. So somehow his mom had married this Greek guy. The language in the text seems to indicate it's possible that Timothy's dad is no longer alive. We don't know that for sure, but that's a speculation based on some language. So we don't know. But we do know that Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother in the Jewish faith. He knew the scriptures. Paul remarks about this in one of his letters to Timothy. He says, oh, you were raised by your mother and your grandmother, and you were taught the scriptures from an early age. You were taught to trust the word of God. So Timothy had that background. How many of you guys can praise the Lord for that background where from an early age you were taught to trust the Lord? You were raised to know the Bible, and that was Timothy. And so somehow, as Paul goes through these areas, the first time he sees the healing, he sees Paul's resolve, comes back into the city, and he becomes a believer. He becomes a believer in Jesus. And, you know, Paul and Barnabas go on with their journey back to Antioch, and there's Timothy now. He's becoming notable. He's growing in his reputation. How old is this young man? We don't know for sure. I wish we did, but probably 
My guess is somewhere late, late, late teens, early 20s at the most, because by the time Paul writes to him his letter, he still calls him a young man. Remember, he says to them, let no one despise your youth, Timothy, because now Timothy's a leader in some of the churches. He becomes Paul's true son in the faith, which is an interesting note. The relationship these two have will become so close. Paul says, I have no one else like-minded. Paul disciples him. He trusts him. He becomes, I guess you could say, Mark's replacement. See, remember, Mark bailed out. But now they go on with their trip. And Timothy, Paul says, ah, there's something about this kid. He's become notable. By the time Paul writes that letter, he still calls him a youth, which is anybody under age 40. How many of you are happy to hear that? Youth is still under age 40. All right. So we'll let you know when the youth group events are happening. You can come and play extreme musical chairs with us. A couple other notes to make about this before we go on. Maybe if you've been around here for a couple of weeks, the interesting thing that you noticed was Paul says, hey, I want to grab Timothy and I want him to come along with us. Now, the first thing I'll note about that is he didn't say, you know, well, I don't trust people anymore. I don't trust Mark. I brought Mark along. I was going to disciple Mark. I was going to invest in Mark, but Mark bailed out and I'm done with discipling. I'm done with people. You just can't trust people. How many of you would say, don't raise your hand, but I'll bet you would say you struggle with trust issues. I hear that all the time, all the time. And here's the first thing I want to note about planning. Well, I'll give you the first two things. The first two things, first one, is that Paul had ambitions for the Lord. He was moving. He was a man in motion. Too many people in the church have all kinds of serious personal plans. Oh, you got all kinds of plans about what you're going to do here. James talked about that, didn't he? He said, come now, come, 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 people, people, people. Come now, you who say, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to buy this, we're going to make a profit. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to be like. And so at the end of that, he says, to him who knows to do good and does it not, it's sin. You see, you spend all your life making all these personal plans of things you want to do, things you want to accomplish. You got your five-year list. You got your 10-year plan. And say, I'll get to God's stuff later. Later may never come. Romans 8, 28 said, God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Be a Christian means that you lay down your plan. You lay down your dreams. You substitute, actually, your dreams for God. How many of you understand what I'm saying? How many of you have been through that? You had a dream, you had a plan, you became a Christian, and some of you go, well, that's why I'm not becoming a Christian, because <laughs> I like my plans. I like my goals. Oh, if you could only know the plans that God has for you, what he would do with you, it's certainly not going to be what you expected, but can we understand? And do you know, have you experienced it? Walking with the Lord is a wild ride, an adventure. I mean, it's an adventure. Paul had plans, didn't he? He had planned to go into Damascus and destroy the church. And what happened? God interrupted his life. So Paul understands interrupted plans. God interrupted his plans. And now all his plans revolve around serving the Lord what the Lord would have him to do. And I'm not saying it has to be your full-time job. Maybe your plan is to become a doctor or a lawyer. You are that. Those are good. We need Christian those. But are there any plans in your life to do something for the Lord? Because if you don't ever plan to do something for the Lord, you'll accomplish it. Think about that. If you don't ever plan to do something for the Lord, you'll accomplish exactly what you plan. How many of you have realized that's how life works? You accomplish what you plan to accomplish. And that takes intentionality. You plan it, and then you do it. Some of you have no plans at all. You're just kind of floating through life. 
And some of you have plans and you're holding so tightly to your plan for your life that there's no wiggle room. The Apostle Paul, number one, he had plans for the Lord. He wanted to serve the Lord. And so he planned things like mission trips so that he could do that. But the important thing about this, this section is his plans left room to include other people. You see, if you've got trust issues, if you feel like you've been burned, if you feel like, well, no one else can do it right, maybe there's some issues in your life. Well, you know, I don't really have room for that. I don't want to take a chance with people. And you'll miss out on something. You'll miss out on some great stuff. An old proverb says this, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's inconvenient sometimes to include other people in your plans. It's inconvenient to have to involve a small team like Paul is putting together. Timothy's going to be the third member. But look at the value in Timothy's life. You see, sometimes you plan to include other people, not for what it's going to do for you, but it's going to do for them. So Timothy, because this older man is willing to take alongside this younger man, it impacts this younger man's life. And as I said, Paul says, you're a true son in the faith. That means, see, in that day, you didn't decide what you were going to do for a living. If you were a young man, your job was already determined for you. If your dad was a blacksmith, guess what you became? A guy with a lot of burns on his hands. No, yeah, a blacksmith. If your dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter and so on down the line. Your mom took care of you till you're about 10. Then you started to pack a lunch and go to work with dad. And when Paul says, Timothy's become to me a true son in the faith, what he's saying is just like a father apprentices his son in a trade, Timothy has been my apprentice in ministry. And I think it's so cool what God is doing among some of the young folks in our church. We're having a growing, active internship ministry, and you guys help support that through giving. And it's great to be able to bring them on and support and encourage. And I love that. Gives such life to the church, doesn't it? So few churches have that opportunity, and so many churches ignore the younger men and the younger women in the church. You just got your thing, and you're doing your thing. Can I challenge you? Number one, if you got something going on, you're doing something for the Lord, you're involved somewhere, find a younger person like Paul. By the way, he says, I was determined. The word wanted is the stronger version of the word to choose. Not just choosing, but determining. Can you determine in your life to have someone younger than you? to identify someone with some promise, someone with some ability, someone that seems really to be serving the Lord, and then encourage them to come alongside of you? Can you make room in your plans for that? Oh, I know it's inconvenient, but it's really important. We're seeing too many young people in the church get relegated to games and fun and youth stuff, but never actually mentored. But Steve, that's going to that's gonna involve some work, right? Yep, but that wasn't my plan. I know but we're not here talking about your plans. So he's determined to take him with him. So he says, Timothy, I'm determined. I'm not going to take no for I want you to come. He didn't say, I got trust issues. Can't. He said, no, Mark didn't work out, but I believe it could work out with you. I'm willing to try again. Are you willing to try again, church? That relationship that went bad, that deal that went sour, are you willing to try again for the Lord? But we got to handle this thing first. You got to get circumcised. Now hold the phone, timeout, big spiritual timeout. Didn't Paul just fight to make sure that people would know that you didn't have to get circumcised to get saved? I mean, isn't that what we just got done reading? Yes. So is Paul compromising? What is happening here? Well, remember, for Timothy, he's already saved. He's a disciple. This is not a matter of Timothy's salvation. It's a matter of his ministry. 
because Timothy is partly Greek, but also partly what, folks? Partly Jewish. And it happens to be that the belief was that the Judaism, the Jewishness, would be passed along not through the patriarch, not through your dad, but through your mom. So Timothy would have been considered culturally, ethnically Jewish. But he's not circumcised because his dad was Greek and they just never did it, never got around to it. So Paul says, look, I want to bring you along with ministry, but we're going to be ministering to Jewish people. We're going to be going to synagogues. And if you don't get circumcised because you're a Jew, they're not going to respect anything you have to say. And it could damage our message. So not a matter of salvation, but a matter of ministry. There's sometimes you have a right not to do something or right to do something, but you give up that right for the sake of others. Paul himself would say, I have certain rights as an apostle, but I give up some rights for the sake of the Lord. I could eat meat, Paul says. I could do what I want, but I give up that right. And so there's some things you do for ministry's sake, not sin, but they're matters of culture. They're matters of building relationships. Paul said, I become all things to all men so that I might save some. What's the big deal, right? If you got to do that thing, just do it so you can have a chance to minister. Not if it's sin. Yeah, I'm going to start a new marijuana smoking ministry. Reach all those marijuana smokers out there. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. It's a matter of ministry. So he gets them circumcised. Why does he say? Because of the Jews in that region. That's why. Because they're going to take it wrong. They're not going to understand. So he gets circumcised and, and they continue on, on their ministry. Look at the result. Verse five says, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. I like that section. So, you know, your plans, as you think about plans, think about if there's room to include someone to disciple in your plan. Just one person. What if every Christian discipled one person? And took time. Can we say relationships take time? Relationships take time. And relationships aren't always for what you're going to get out of it. But Timothy didn't invite himself. It was Paul. It was the older man in the relationship or the older woman that has to take the time to say, you know what? I feel a connection to you. I'd love to invite you to come and come to the soup kitchen with me. Why don't you come out? Let's get out of the nursing home together. But it's going to take time. So that's the first part about plans. As they continue on, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Messiah, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia to help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul and Silas and now Timothy with them, they had these great plans, but it seems that they're kind of confused here, doesn't it? Does this strike anybody as kind of odd? Like they got these plans and we're heading west and we're going to, Paul says, hey guys, hey team, team, come on in, come on, let's do this. I know this city called Ephesus. There's synagogues there. It's a, a center of idol worship. Be a great place for us to go. I think we could really get a foothold. It's a major city in Asia Minor. I think we really get a good foothold for the gospel there. So they say, come on, let's go. But then what happens? Did you read that? I mean, is that, do we really read that together? That they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word? I mean, how many of you does that hit just like a ton of bricks? Like, what do you mean? I would think the Holy Spirit would permit me to teach the word anywhere. And of course, teaching the word is a good thing. So here's what we have to discern out here. Some plans are good plans. Some plans are godly plans, but sometimes good plans and godly plans aren't God's plan. Do you understand that? 
Just because it's a good plan, and even though it's a godly plan, the question is, God, is this your plan? So they're attempting to go this way, and seems like they're all confused, but the Spirit of God forbids them. How do you do in your life when something is forbidden from you? How do you handle that? When you got a plan and God says no, or anybody says no to your plan, how dare they say no to them? That's my plan. I got plans, Pastor. It doesn't matter who says yes to your plans if God is saying no. It doesn't matter who says no to your plans if God is saying yes. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you read the Word, and the Word of God forbids something in your life. It's forbidden. It's forbidden. What is it about us? That wants the forbidden thing. What is it about Satan directing us to the very thing God forbids? Even if it's good for Eve, it was a bad thing. It was disobedience. But sometimes it's a good thing. There's lots of opportunities. How many of you are overwhelmed by the number of possibilities in your life? And the number, well, do I do this? Do I go there? Do I go here? I mean, it's crazy. I talk to people all the time. Like, what does God want from me? What am I supposed to do? And sometimes some of you are stuck in the first book of hesitations. Well, I think I'm supposed to go here, but I don't know. Maybe I'm supposed to go, I don't know. I'm hesitant to go. I don't know if this is what God wants me. And we labor and we burden and we try all over. What is is this God, what God wants me to do? And so you read the word and you know, in some ways, exactly what he wants you to do. He wants you to be joyful. He wants you to rejoice. He wants you to be thankful. He wants you to walk by faith. They're in the Word. You can read those. But there's some things that are just not in the Word. Like, where do I go to college? Can't turn to the first book of universities and find out where do I go to college. Let's say the Lord. Steve, go here. No. Where do I live? What job do I take? These things are not clearly written in the Word. So Paul, God, where do you want us to go? And he says, I think I'm being led here. But evidently not. The Spirit is forbidding him. Now, don't you want to know how that happened? Don't you wish we had more information? What did that look like? What is it like his visa ran out or we know like danger doesn't trouble Paul. He doesn't start to go to Asia and go, oh no, people are going to be against me. We're out of here. No, that doesn't bother Paul at all. It's not persecution. What is it? It could be some physical limitation. It could be some circumstantial thing that happens to us. Sometimes God seems to close the door, but maybe it's in Paul's life as he's praying about this. I'm assuming in between the lines that that these guys are praying about this. And maybe as they're praying, it was sort of like what happened to us as a church years ago. Looking for land, we thought, oh, we got, we're looking for land. We think we're, you know, we're growing as a church and we're trying to decide where do we build? And we, we have this area and we're meeting at the high school and we found this piece of land just a couple miles from the high school on Central Plains Road. That's close to the high school. People could easily, you know, we're starting to, to chug it out in our minds. That, you know, that's how we work at our plans. We ignore Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We trust the Lord with some of our heart, but really lean mostly on our understanding. That's how we make decisions. So this is what we're doing. We're leaning on our understanding. We're kind of strategizing. That's the big word in church these days. We have strategies. We have strategy teams, planning sessions. That's not wrong, but I'm afraid that too many church teams leave no room for the Spirit of God because we got our own understanding. Here's what we understand. We got our strategy team together. We're gonna have a planning thing and we're gonna do it. And we don't leave room for the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do. Maybe your life is like that too. You got your plans and your strategies. You're a schemer. You're a planner. You got it figured out. No room for God. But we had it all figured out. And then time came to come to closing on this 13-acre piece of land right near the high school. Three of the elders go to closing and 
there's a little bit of a thing in the contract that changes, not a deal breaker by any means, but it's like the God hit the pause button. And the three guys looked at each other and they said, we're not supposed to do this. And they walked away from that closing. We didn't have anything else. We didn't know where we were supposed to go. We just began to pray, Lord. We actually gave up looking for land. And that's when God said, okay, here's an open door. And here we are. Just last year, opportunity comes. We get tons of opportunities for ministry. I mean, there's no end to ministries to support, things to do. There's no end, right? I mean, if we did everything we were asked to do, we'd go nutso. Some of us are trying. Any and every opportunity is just means you're supposed to do it. You're not. Have you prayed about it? Just because it's a good thing doesn't mean it's a godly thing. And just because it's a godly thing doesn't mean it's God's thing for you. And so this ministry opportunity came up. Someone presented it to us. Man, that sounds great. It's a good thing. But we don't know if we're supposed to do it. So let's pray. So the elders began to pray and we pray, we pray. And man, it's a really cool ministry. We could reach some people in the community. Really, you know, be a good thing. But we finally, decision time came. You know how you feel when decision time finally comes? Like, ah, I can't procrastinate this anymore. Decision time is here. We sat around the table and we just looked at each other and be like, we just really feel like the Lord's saying no. And none of us understood why, but we just understood that the Lord was saying no. We didn't have peace in our heart. Sometimes that's the way you make decision. Paul writes, I think it's in the book of Colossians, and let the peace of God rule or umpire in your heart. There's not a yay or a nay specifically from the word of God, but sometimes this thing, it seems good, but you just go in your heart like, I just don't, I don't have peace about it. And that's between you and the Lord. And so this thing came up, we didn't have peace about it. Then we had to say, well, you know, it's a great idea, but we just, we're not peace about it. We're going to say no. That's hard for someone when they want to have their plan go forward or they want to do their thing. It's, we've had to do that a number of times. Like you can't put it into terms where you can understand it. I can't say to you, well, here's reason A, B, C, D, and E. There aren't those reasons. It's just that we just feel like the Lord said no. And sometimes the Lord says yes, but I'm not in control of that. Do I get it wrong sometimes? Maybe. But aren't you glad for this section right here? How many of you are worried of making mistakes? Oh, me, that's me, that's me. Huge, huge. I'm so thankful for a God that even though I'm going in a direction, he's able to redirect me if I'll listen to him, if I'll be sensitive to him. So sometimes I get into stuff, I don't know really where it's going. I just know I'm supposed to start and go, okay, Lord, I want to be like that car, like your kids, your little kids, like the car's in the parking lot or it's in the driveway and it's off and the kids get in and they just grab the steering wheel and go like this, right? They start and they're driving, you know, they're, they got the whole imagination thing going on. They're driving, but the car's not going anywhere. And the cool rule about working with God is that he can only really direct a car that's moving. So a lot of you are saying, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm afraid of making a mistake. I don't want to disappoint God. And that's a good heart behind that. But so then you don't do anything. You sit there and say, I'm just waiting for God to direct me. Just waiting for God to tell me what to do. And I'll sit here. No, no, no. Start going. Do something that you know is good. There's a thousand things you could do. And as you start going, then God will begin to reveal his plan to you, his will to you. If you're sensitive to it. You know, I started out as a deacon in a church, did that for a while. And then I got into youth ministry, did youth ministry for a time. And then started a Bible study. And so I was going, going for the Lord. Where, Lord, where do you want me to go? I'll get involved. I'll be involved. I'll do something for you, Lord. And I'm going to trust Oh man, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed this, Lord. I think this is what you're saying, but I'm not sure. So here's what I'm gonna do, Lord. Let's make a deal. If I'm wrong, you stop. You redirect me. 
And then I got to be willing to be redirected. Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Not permitted. So they, they try to head south. And then so they go, well, can't go south. So Paul says, well, let's head north, you know. Okay, turn the steering wheel back around, you know. Okay, reverse directions. We're heading north. And off they go to the north. And they go, oh, yeah, Bithynia, that must be where God is calling us. Well, guess what happens there? And strike two, Paul. This guy should know the Lord better, shouldn't he? I mean, if Paul can't get it right all the time, what chance do I have? But aren't you thankful for that? I mean, aren't we thankful that we see Paul struggling to know the will of God for his ministry? Oh, praise the Lord. That takes the pressure off. Then I feel free to kind of, okay, let's try this. And so block there. So now they head west to Troas, and Paul's scratching his head going, Lord, where are we supposed to go? And he's praying and he's seeking the Lord. When's the last time you really sought the Lord about what he wanted you to do? Or do you seek your friends? Do you seek counsel from other people, but you never seek the Lord? You got to ask God because he speaks to you in that still small voice, right? He speaks to you a number of ways, but that's the way. So then at night, Paul has a vision. It's a man from Macedonia. This is Greece. And he stood and pleaded with him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Ah, Paul wakes up in the morning and he is refreshed. Shoes are on early. He's had his morning devotional, had his cup of coffee. He gathers the team and says, guys, you'll never guess what happened last night while I was sleeping. I had a vision. It was from the Lord. I know where he wants us to go. Oh, I love it when that happens. When you just have this clear direction, like I know where we're supposed to go. So that's what he says. Calls his team together. Say, hey, we're supposed to go over to Greece. He concluded, the end of that verse says, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Remember, it was a no here, it was a no there, so that God could give the resounding yes, yes to here. And sometimes that's what it's like for your life. God says no here, don't give up. Try something else. God says no there, don't give up. Because somewhere he's going to direct you, and yes, and that's where you're going to have the impact that he wants you to have. Now watch what happens. Verse 11, therefore, they have direction. Now they're going to go. Sailing from Troas, that was a port city where we showed you on the Aegean Sea. Sailing from Troas, notice this, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And I'm sure I said that wrong, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. We, where did we come from? Verse 6 said, now when they had gone. Verse 7 said, after they had come. All this they stuff, now all of a sudden we is introduced. Can you see that there's been a fourth member of the team added somehow during this process? Who wrote the book of Acts, you know? It was Luke the physician. And it's likely that, seems probable that, inevitable that, right here, Luke seems to join this team. Now it's a four-man team. And they got a doctor on board. That's good for Paul because he gets in trouble a lot. A lot of Band-Aids on that guy. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and the next day came to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. Neapolis was the port city for Philippi, uh, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony, a Roman colony. There's a lot of historical stuff about this place I'm not going to get into right now. Just know this, Philippi says it right here, was a foremost city in that area and it was a Roman colony, so the people were there were Roman citizens. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. So notice, Paul's typical MO is to do what? What's he do when he rolls into a town? Where does he go? Not to the movies, 
Not to the coffee shop, which maybe today he would go to the coffee shop first. No, he goes where? He goes to the synagogue. Well, there ain't one in Philippi. The only way you could have a synagogue is you have 10 Jewish men to form it. So evidently there weren't 10 Jewish men. Not sure if there were any, maybe a few, but he finds by the river, this is where they would pray. If there wasn't a synagogue, they gathered by the river, down by the Rivan or something like that. And that's where they would pray. And Paul knew that after poking around the city, finds out no synagogue, says, hey, there's got to be some Jews around here somewhere, or at least some people that worship God in the midst of all this idolatry. And he finds them by the river. Certainly this is going to be where he meets that Macedonian man, right? But he meets a woman named Lydia. Interesting. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us because he was speaking to the women. He's just sharing the gospel with these women, these Jewish women. And Lydia's there, she hears. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Purple clothing. Purple clothing was expensive. It was made from the grinding up these uh, mollusks to get the purple dye. And it's a complicated process. And you had only available there in the ocean area. And so limited availability. So very expensive. And Lydia had this job and she had this commercial sales thing that she had going on selling purple clothing. And she was from Thyatira. She's a, a Greek woman not a a Jew, a Gentile, but she worshiped God, kind of like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who was a a God-fearer. So she knew God. She knew of the God of the Jews, but she'd never become a Jew, and she felt like she was never going to fit in, never going to be part of that. But she would still gather and watch the Jewish women pray and participate on some level. But look at what the Lord does. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira and worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. I don't know what you think of that line, but again, I like it because people's salvation experiences can be so different, can't they? Maybe you're thinking that every time there should be a salvation experience, it should be some, you know, fireworks and warm fuzzies. You talk to a friend at work and when they got saved, they had this tingly feeling rush all over their body and you're waiting for the tingly feeling and you're sitting in church going, someday I'll get saved when I get the tingly feeling or the cold sweats or whatever. I just wake waiting for the feeling and I That's some people's experience. But other people's experience is they just come here a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, they're just reading it in a Bible study in one morning, and they just hear what's being said, and they go, that's for me. God is speaking to me. And all of a sudden, your heart just opens up to God, and you invite him to come in. And maybe, oh, I pray that maybe this morning that would be one of your stories. Maybe just hearing this Bible study about this Greek woman named Lydia who doesn't really fit in with the Jews. And maybe you came here feeling like, I don't fit in. I just don't fit in here. I'm different. Maybe these people all got their lives figured out. Trust me, we don't, in case that was you. But I'm somehow different and I'm a misfit. I'm gonna you know, sit around the sides and not really, it's not for me. I'm gonna tell you it's for you. And maybe hearing this, the Lord will tell you that you can be saved today. There's just a woman who hears the word of God and the Lord opens her heart to hear. The Lord has to open your heart. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. She ends up with a church in her house. She's got room evidently in her house to have guests, hospitality, and she ends up having the church meet in her house. But here's what I want to wrap up with today. When we talk about plans, I wonder if Paul could have looked at the results from this and said, you know, Maybe we got it wrong. You know, I can imagine, you know, Silas, Timothy, Luke. Remember when, you know, we were in this other city and 
man, half the city came out and they wanted to hear us preach. And it was a great response. All these Gentiles were getting saved. And, and that's what we're looking for. But now here we are. God seems to have directed us here, but it's just one woman that opens her heart to the Lord. And there's something in our hearts that goes, well, hmm, not sure if that was the Lord. What do you mean not sure if that was the Lord? Who says that one woman getting saved is not of the Lord? You see, sometimes we idolize our plans. We have these grand plans because we want people to think so great of us. And now I've got this small church, but I want a bigger church. And I want more people in a bigger ministry. But I serve a God who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And so sometimes God's plan for you is have a really powerful ministry to one person at a time. I think about Philip back in Acts chapter 8. Philip has this tremendous ministry success in Samaria. Great multitudes get saved. And then God says, Philip, got another plan for you. Speaks to him by an angel, by the way. If an angel speaks to you, better listen. Says, I got this job for you. Got a plan for you. Want to go off? to have you go off to this deserted desert road and speak to one man, an Ethiopian eunuch. He's going to be reading the Bible as you meet him, and he's going to need to hear from you. And he does. So sometimes we can get disappointed when God's plans don't measure up to our expectations, can't we? So that's the other thing about God's plans. Success in the eyes of God involves obedience greater than more important than results. See, sometimes you judge the plans by results. And God says, no, I want you to judge them by obedience. That's how you know you're successful. Who are we to tell God what to do? Who are we to counsel God? So what's important? But are you willing in your plans to be used not just for the great things, but for the little things? I'll tell you what, people who plan to be used by God for little things, God says, I can use you for much. Aren't we good at making grand plans, folks? We make these big, we got big plans. The problem is we never get going. You just got that steering wheel. You're sitting in a car, moving it back and forth. And oh God, come on, I got big plans. God, let's go, get in. You got to press the accelerator and start moving and start with that little thing, most powerful thing. One thing, if I could pass one thing to my kids, I could pass one thing on to you guys. Those that are faithful with little, God will make ruler over much. How can two walk together if they be not agreed? Huh? How can you walk with God if you're not willing to come alongside of him? So get out of the seat, get out of the driver's seat, give God the control and say, God, I want to do what you want for my life.